For only the second time in my career, I'm doing back-to-back shows at the same theater. First, there was Anne of Green Gables this past summer, and now there's 42nd Street here at the Goodspeed Opera House in Connecticut. It's a show I've done before a few years back and in the same role as well. Only this time, there's a lead producer who's working hard to bring this production, and hopefully its cast, to Broadway. It has Karina K. Lucci as the young starlet Peggy Sawyer, Max von Essen as the hard-nosed director Julian Marsh. I'm in the role of Pat Denning, playing opposite one of my favorite leading ladies of Broadway. Hi, my name is Kate Baldwin. I am originally from Evanston, Illinois, but also Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I now live in Maplewood, New Jersey after a 20-year stint in New York City. I am an actor, a singer, a fundraiser, a mother, a wife, a friend, and I love tacos. Now see, that's a woman after my own heart. As if there wasn't reason enough to love her from her roles in Hello, Dolly, Finian's Rainbow, Big Fish. Who doesn't love a good taco? But getting back to theater, in 42nd Street, Kate plays the veteran actress Dorothy Brock. And we talk about this current production of 42nd Street and why it means so much to us. Then we take a surprisingly candid and unvarnished look at her career and why she was told she'd probably never have one in theater. We also talk about the many ways we performers often compare ourselves to others and how to handle those times when someone else gets the part over us. Jealousy is interesting because we all get jealous. So denying that you don't get jealous, I I call bullshit on that. I always like to pay attention to jealousy because that tells me what I really want. Welcome and thank you for joining me for another episode of Why I'll Never Make It, an award-winning Top 25 Theater podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, an actor and singer talking with fellow creatives each episode of personal struggles and professional hardships with lessons we can all learn from. The website is whyillnevermakeit.com, where you can subscribe to bonus episodes and offer your own financial support to the production of this podcast. Again, that's whyillnevermakeit.com. Welcome, Kate Baldwin. It is a joy to have... We're already laughing. I love it. I love it. We've been talking already, but it's a joy to welcome you to the podcast. I'm so happy to be doing this. (laughs) Now, you and I are, of course, sharing the stage here at Goodspeed at 42nd Street. So... Whether it's a classic show like 42nd Street or or newer works like you just did Karate Kid musical, newer one like that at Stages St. Louis, what is it that you look for? Like what draws you to one show over another? Well, the story, first of all, uh, the script and the music, whether or not uh, there's something fun for me to do in in the show. And also with a new work like Karate Kid, like how much I can contribute to it and how much I can be a part of its actual creation. And then... No surprise to you, my friend, it's the people involved. I want to be in the sandbox with the most delightful, creative, fun, perky people I can find. So uh, whether that's doing something like 42nd Street, which I already knew Randy Skinner and Rob Berman, 
when they approached me about doing this part or, you know, a, a new work with a new composer and a new, someone who's unfamiliar to me as a director. I want to find out who they are and, and, and what they're all about and what makes them tick. That's what keeps me coming back the more. Now, at this point, are you just approached like for 42nd Street to just join or do you still audition? Like, what is that process like? Uh, no, I do some auditioning. Uh, for this show, I was asked to join. For Karate Kid, I was asked to join. But I auditioned for Hello, Dolly. I definitely uh, went in for that. And I've auditioned for shows since then that I didn't get. So, you know, it's I would say it's about 50-50. Now, with 42nd Street, you're playing the part of Dorothy Brock, a, a famous star of the stage, making her come back with the new musical. And now, since you're playing an actress on stage, what parts of Dorothy Brock are you? What parts are not? Is there intermingling of the two? Well, that's fascinating. I think about Dorothy Brock and I think about when Bert, played by the amazing E. Clay Cornelius, and Maggie, played by the delightful Lisa Howard, and Max, who's playing Julian Marsh, are talking about the cast early on. And Julian's saying, well, that's Brock I'm worried about. She hasn't had a hit in 10 years. I think about how, like, my career has kind of, yes, I've, I've done, you know, six Broadway shows, but they've been all kind of spaced out. It's kind of like one every five years. And then, and with the exception of Hello, Dolly, I was in each one for approximately four months. So I've never really had a long sit down in a big hit show. And so I, that kind of vulnerability sort of plays into what I think about when I bring uh, somebody like Dorothy on stage, someone who is deeply vulnerable. And in her case, it comes out as paranoia of like, how is she, is she going to be scorned? Is she going to be um, mistreated? Is she going to be shoved aside and somehow um, maligned while she's working on, you know, pretty lady? Me, Kate, I just feel like lucky to be in the room. And so I try so hard, as you know, to like think of fun things to do, make sure everybody feels good about what they're doing um, and keeping it fresh and keeping it new. So I can relate to Dorothy's vulnerability. I think we all carry all of that as actors. I think every time you start something, you're worried about its outcome, excited about it, but also concerned too. Yeah, I think that that's something that whether it's personal or professional that all of us actors can relate to. Yeah, I think so too. And I think um, it's interesting because in our scenes, because you're playing Pat Denning, who is the true like love of her life and the person that she's evidently, you know, I wanted to make it evident from the very beginning that they belong together. So I wanted her to kind of drop the facade of her grandeur. So sometimes, and I'm sure you know people like this, when they're feeling vulnerable or, or nervous about things, they kind of put on a, a grander state of being. And I think that's what Dorothy does. And sometimes I do that in my real life too. But I wanted that to all fall away when she sees Pat and realizes that her true past has caught up with her and she has to, and the decision about what to do in the future becomes more urgent, you know, which way is she going to go? Is she going to go for her showbiz life and the fake relationship with Abner Dillon, or is she going to follow her heart? Well, it's interesting that Randy Skinner said that the Dorothy-Pat relationship was the love story mm -hmm. of 42nd Street, which mm -hmm. I, I hadn't thought of it that way until this production. Yeah, right? You always think of Billy and Peggy because Billy comes on so strong at the beginning. And then sometimes that Julian-Marsh triangle sometimes thrown in there. Right. And that is something that we have uh, altered for this particular production to make it sort of more palatable for 2022. Right. And less creepy director. Right. Which I think is a good thing. Agreed. 
Now, with 42nd Street having just opened, you know, reviews are coming out, mostly good. They're talking about wonderful things. Are, do you have a policy when it comes to reviews of reading them or not? I, I do not read reviews. Why is your rule to not read them? Because then all I'll do on stage is think about what the reviewer said, whether it was good or bad. You know, it doesn't matter if it was a criticism or whether it was praise. I'll just think, oh, I'm really good at this part. You know what I mean? Or, oh, I sucked right here. Let me see what I can do to change it. For me, every night, it's about taking the temperature of the audience and making sure that I'm connecting with the people on stage. I mean, because every audience is different. And sometimes, too, like I remember a a quick story from from Hello Dolly. That show five years ago on Broadway starred Bette Midler and and David Hyde Pierce, and it had this deluxe production. No corner was cut, no expense was spared in terms of um, costumes and the design elements and the set and the orchestra and everything was was just really first rate. And so they charged a first rate ticket too. So premium prices were through the roof for that show. And I'll never forget we're standing there at curtain call. And the curtain comes down and I'm two people away from Bet, and she sees a couple in the front row, younger couple, who were standing and applauding, but the look on their face was one of kind of disappointment and dismay. And she said, ah. the curtain hit the floor and she turned to me and Gavin and she said, I think the ticket prices are too high. I think people are, are expecting me to shoot confetti out of my ass or something. You know what I mean? Like right. I, they didn't think that they'd see a musical with a wooden train in it. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't to their expectations. And so it was a reminder for me that every audience has a different expectation. And an audience, too, is not a monolith, right? It's filled with different individuals who bring their own experiences to the material. Some people who may have seen 42nd Street before, others who have no idea what it is. Other people who have, you know, are seeing a musical for the very first time or people who have seen every incarnation of 42nd Street ever done and are familiar with the movie and the novel and and all those other source materials. So it really is uh, just trying to have fun in the moment and be real in the moment and do what delights myself and do what delights <laughs> hopefully bringing other people along with me, not at the expense of anyone else on stage. You know what I'm saying? Of course. But like, yeah. you know. But there's something to be said for having fun in a role and that fun is going to hopefully connect with an audience and, and then bring them into the show as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, let's get to your first story. And this first one is about your height. <laughs> now, you say you were never an ingenue, but rather you were stuck covering and understudying other actresses until you finally grew into your leading ladiness. Yeah. And casting directors, artistic directors, teachers all told you that you were too tall for a career in theater. Now, now I'm wondering, outside of theater, had you ever been self-conscious about your height? Um, I don't think so. No, I don't think anybody made me feel like I couldn't do something because I was too tall. No, just on stage. So what was it about being too tall that made you seem so uncastable to these people? Well, um, when you're young, on stage, youth equals short and maturity equals tall. I'm sure you've understood this oh, yes. particular thing, right? So here I was in college and and newly graduated from college, tall. Uh, I have broad shoulders. I have a low speaking voice. I've read a book or two. I, and I also had a little bit of like, I don't know, I was a little salty when I graduated from sass. school. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I thought I was smarter than everybody else. I didn't know what to do. So, you know, I projected a maturity that wasn't necessarily uh, 
right for the roles that I wanted to audition for, you know? Who would buy me as a scraggly, you know, um, awkward kid? I wasn't. I was, you know, sort of a leading lady waiting to come into her own. And actually a casting director said, you just have to wait. You just have to wait and you have to get ready in the time. He's like, you're going to hit it in about 10 years. And so did that feel defeated? Did that feel like, oh, what am I doing? In the moment, yes. But I thought, okay, I'm not interested really in playing ingenue roles anyway. Like I'm going in for Belle and Beauty and the Beast and I'm going in for, you know, I uh, got two great understudy roles early on in my career. One, I understudied a fabulous actress. Both of them are fabulous actresses. But one, I watched her craft her role and I watched her ask for specific things to be changed within the script or within the staging. We were working on a revival, so there was only so much leeway she had. But I watched her communicate with people and I watched her charm everyone and I watched her performance, which I thought was so wonderful. And I thought, huh, that's how you do it. And then after that, I understudied another actress who is equally as talented, but had that paranoia. And so anytime anything got cut or changed or, you know, anything, she would react as though she had been uh, slighted. She had been somehow diminished. So her defenses were up. And I watched how the room changed, the temperature in the room changed, and how the creative team kind of put up a little wall between themselves and her. And I thought, huh, that's how not to do it. So what I'll say about being too tall <laughs> to play the roles that I was understudying, my youth did not align with the way I looked and, and what those roles required was that I got the benefit of being in the room and watching other people do the thing I wanted to eventually do. And I got to learn from them how to do it and maybe how not to do it. So, and that was incredibly helpful. We were even talking about this a couple of nights ago about there was a particular show where you got to sit in in the audition. Yes. And, and so I imagine that it was interesting seeing the various actors and actresses that were coming through that were going to be in this show that you had already been cast in. Yeah. And watching actors audition because I know what it's like to be the auditioner. I don't know what it's like to watch uh, actor after actor come in. Have you ever been a reader or been in that I situation? I have been. And it's, it's fascinating to watch. And, and you see those nerves come through. You see the people that hold the script in front of their face and they're shaking. And then you see the people that put that script down and they're just like free birds just flying all over the room. And it's wonderful to see. Yeah. And you see people get in their own way all the time. It was very informative for me because uh, I think we all want to go in and be perfect and give an opening night performance. And what I learned through watching auditions was that even if you uh, make a mistake or something doesn't go as planned, it's the way you recover that tells a creative team more about how you'll handle a rehearsal process and a performance than anything else. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, as you mentioned, I am someone who's tall. <laughs> yes. And uh, I, and I know that my height has been an issue for some directors as well. But I would say in general, you know, if I didn't book a show that I was auditioning for, I would think of other reasons why I didn't book it. You know, my height was never an issue. When you were auditioning and didn't book something, was height something you thought of or were, was it other things? I was told, you know, I didn't get the revival of uh, Follies in 2000, whatever it was, the Blythe Danner one, because I was too darn tall. Yeah, I mean, I, they tell you things all the Oh, here's one, though. Uh, I booked a replacement in Wonderful Town. So Wonderful Town happened on Broadway in 2004, maybe, with the wonderful Donna Murphy playing Ruth Sherwood. And Jennifer Westfelt played her sister, Eileen. And my friend Nancy Anderson played their wacky next-door neighbor, Helen Wade. So Nancy was going to leave the show. I had seen it. I was like, well, that would be really fun to do. So to play Helen and then to cover the two ladies. That sounded great. And so I went in 
And I had one of those auditions where you're just flying, where you're just like, I know this, this is crazy, you know? And I, uh, did it and heard the next day that I got booked the part. This was great. And then, uh, maybe a, a week later or something, I went on a commercial audition and I ran into a friend and, uh, we were at this commercial audition. Hey, what are you doing? What's, what's up? How are you doing? Oh, I just booked wonderful town. And she goes, huh, that's weird. They told me I was too tall and we are eye to eye. Me and my friend, we are like the same type, you know, cause we're in for a commercial yeah. and they, they go for the same. And I just looked at her. I was like, wow, they'll say anything to like give you a reason as to why you didn't get it. When sometimes the reason is just, it's not you today. It's not yeah. yours today. It has nothing to do with your talent, has nothing to do with who you are as a human. And it really isn't about how tall you are, right? It's just about, it wasn't you today. <laughs> right, right. And, and it could be who you're up against. I, I think me being tall mm. helped the fact, you know, since you're a taller woman, yep. that our height difference was looks good on stage. Oh, thank you know, God for you. Right. So so in this case, my height was a benefit, you know, since they'd already cast you. Yeah. Whereas in other times I've been cast because the other girl was 5'2", and they thought that would be funny. Oh, how did that work? It, it, it actually worked well. It was for Greece. Oh, that's so good. So we were like, you know, foot and a half apart, but it was <laughs> it made it a, a funny pairing. Yeah. Cheyenne would talk about that too. Cheyenne Jackson would talk about early on in his career, he played Tony in West Side Story, and he said his Maria was like four foot eleven. He said he literally would like pick her up and kiss her and then put her <laughs> down again. You know what I mean? And that was unintentionally funny, but funny. Well, this gets us into story number two, where you like to play casting director at your auditions. <laughs> That's so right. Bad. Yes. And, and, and what you do is you you say that you look around the room uh -huh. and you pick the people who will do a better job than you. Not a better job, but would be a better fit for the role. A better fit. Now, uh -huh. now what well, I'd cast her in this. Yeah, she'd be great in this. What is it you're looking for? What do you see that's a better fit? Well, I have an idea maybe of my version of of the role, but I look around and I see other people and I go, oh, well, she clearly has a, a, a clearer idea or she looks like she knows what she's doing better than I do. It's typecast. awful. You're typecasting. I kind of am. How yeah, dare you? I know. It's the worst. <laughs> Listen, I went in for Hello, Dolly, and I was like, they're never going to pick me for this. I'm too old. I'm too tall. I'm too this. I'm too that. And I just, And I looked around the room. I was like, oh, I'd totally pick her instead of me. They were all younger than me. Okay. And I was like, oh, they're going to pick somebody younger. I got it. Okay. You know, they're doing me a favor by calling me in. <laughs> <laughs> and in that regard, in that particular sense, it took any sort of stress or pressure right off because I was like, I'll just go in and I'll just, you know, I'll do it. I've played Irene Malloy twice before. I know this role in my bones. I don't need the script. You know, I'll just go in and do m my version. And if they like it, they like it. No, but you know, I'm, I will not have wasted this afternoon. Which to me is the best mental space to be in when you go into an audition. It's like, whatever happens, happens. I'm just going to have fun yeah. in the room. Yeah, exactly. Because she's going to get it. So I have no shot anyway. So no big deal. But, and, so go in and And that attitude, that, that fun, that playfulness is obviously what got you the role. I think that's right. Because they called the same day. They didn't even have callbacks. Yeah. So I got audition. on the train and went home and then my phone rang. I was picking up the dry cleaning. They're like, hey, do you want to play Irene Malloy? I was like, oh, yeah, sounds great. <laughs> now, have you ever thought of going into casting yourself? No, I would hate to be the middleman. <laughs> I think that sounds like a really terrible job. Don't you? 
Well, yeah, because you scare actors in the way that they're nervous around you, but yet you really have no power. Ultimately, at the end of the day, the director, the producers, they're the ones who really call the shots. They're the ones who make the decisions, but you're a gatekeeper. Right. That, that, that casting director is really a gatekeeper. But if that's a person, I feel like a casting director can get yelled at from both sides. They get yelled at from the producers. Why aren't you bringing me the people I want to see? And they get yelled at from the agents. Why aren't you seeing my clients? So like, I, I would not want to be that person who gets yeah, yelled it, at. The it takes a special time. kind of person. It does. It does. God bless them. <laughs> <laughs> now, also, when you say when it comes to auditions that you want everyone to like you, which is, you know, I think, I think it's what we all do in auditions. We, <laughs> but you want the people in the holding room uh-huh. to like you. And so you start getting all chatty I and, do. And, and you start, you know, talking with them and you say that you get distracted, you know, rather than sticking to your guns, to your work, to your prep, and you're far more interested in what they're doing than what you need to be doing Mm -hmm. going into the audition. What is it about the holding room that kind of distracts you (laughs) so much? I think people are fascinating, and I think actors are the most fascinating people of all. Really, honestly, truly. And, you know, I've been in New York for 25, been a professional actor for 25 years. So chances are in that holding room, I know at least two or three or four people. Like I'm thinking of an audition I went on last summer where I just was chatty Cathy in the audition room the entire time. And didn't get a call back because I was too, like, (laughs) invested in, like, how was your summer? What are your kids doing? Oh, my God. Where are you living now? So you found that once you went into the audition room, you you weren't present? I don't know that – I'm not going to blame – because I was very well prepared for that. I think I just ultimately was the wrong person for it. But um, I value community. I value our community so much. And so I kind of – err on the side of going overboard of trying to make everybody feel welcome. I think the opposite, if I were to sit in a chair by myself and like deny who else was in the space with me would stress me out. If like my friend is over there and she's getting ready for the role and I'm also getting ready for the role, to not acknowledge that she's there and to talk to her and ask her how she is would would make my nerves through the roof. But I know those actors. I've had friends who like you know, will kind of give a glance, maybe a head nod, and then they go right back to their script because I know that they're focused. So, I mean, th- there is certainly that that time to be focused. I generally find for myself it's the more serious roles or maybe one that I don't know as well that I have to focus. But fun, lighthearted roles. I might be bouncing around the <laughs> talking I, to people. It, I'm the opposite. I have to get it out. I have to get it out and I have to like acknowledge it and get it in, and deal with it, De- deal with it in a nice way, in a good way before I can then focus on what I need to do in the room. And once I get in that room, it's bam, I'm into the business. Now, I do wonder though, whenever you're talking, especially whenever it's like friends, in some way, does it calm you down to have that connection and that personal touch with people in the holding room before you get in? Yeah. Well, yes. Because guess what? Whether or not either of us gets this job, we're still going to be friends. You know what I mean? They can't take that away from you. I think one of the most powerful things somebody ever said to me was, what's the worst thing that could happen at an audition? They say no. Big deal. Like that, that's, that's not the worst that's thing. That's going to happen most of the time. Yeah. And you still have, you, you know, you still have your family, you still have a place to live, you still have, you know, ice cream in the freezer, you still have your community and your friends, like, y- nothing has been taken away from you. It just, an opportunity came and went, but you're not diminished in any way, like, you're still you. So that was, that was a powerful thing to learn early on, and to really absorb. Is jealousy ever an issue for you as far as friends getting it or not getting it over you? Jealousy is interesting because we all get jealous. So denying that you don't get jealous, I I call bullshit on that. 
people, you go, oh, I wanted that. Or oh, that seemed like such a cool project. I always like to pay attention to jealousy because that tells me what I really want. Because I'm pretty good at convincing myself, oh, this was the right choice. And that's what we do as humans, right? Like, oh, well, this happened. You know, that whole everything happens for a reason kind of mentality that some people have. I think sometimes if you go, ooh, I would have liked to have done that. Or what's she doing? Ooh, I wanted to do that. I have to look at that and go, what is that leading me towards? What does that tell me about where I need to go next and what I need to focus on and what I'm interested in? I think jealousy is another uh, way to figure out what you're really interested in. Does that make sense? I think it does because I know earlier in my career, I was auditioning for everything. Mm -hmm. If they needed a male, I was there. You know, <laughs> it was that kind of thing. Whereas as I started to get older, as I started to, to do more shows, I started to find out, oh, I really like this or I gravitate toward these characters or this is my typecasting. And so I started to see a pattern, not only with casting directors, but then to myself, what I liked, what I gravitated towards. So then as parts fell away that I stopped auditioning for, I wasn't as jealous when other people were getting them because yeah. it's like, that that's not me. That's not mine. You know, yeah. But then the parts that did mean something to me, the shows that I really loved, you know, I started to see a passion and a drive to get those. So I, I think you're right that jealousy is, it's a natural inclination, yep. but it's also an indicator as to a direction to go. Right. And sometimes you don't know what's for you until you're in that audition room. Have you ever had the experience where you're there and you're like, oh, this job is not for me? Like in the middle of the audition that has happened. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And and not just because I can see, you know, their eyes roll in the back of their head <laughs> as, as I'm auditioning. No. no. No, no, no. But as I'm doing this role, I'm like, this, this song just, it doesn't fit, right? Like I can't. And then the director gives you feedback or a little tweak and then you do it and you it's like, oh, I'm just not either connecting yeah. with this role or, or sometimes it's a chemistry with the director. You just don't, you're not on the same page. So yes, I've definitely felt that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then conversely, there are those where in the room, it takes on a new, and you're like, oh, mm -hmm. I really like this. And that happened to me when I was doing a nymph audition and it was for Swiss Family Robinson for this French pirate. Okay. And, and there was a certain, <laughs> and I mean, it's a funny role, so I could have fun with it, but what I had prepared was not even close to what I did in the audition room that kind of went to another level, you know? And, and you start to really feel a part of that character and hopefully a part of the show. That's so magical when that happens. Isn't that magical? For you, what have you found in the audition room has been that spark that's brought you to another level or sent you into a place that you didn't know that you could do? Um, it won't surprise you that in every instance, I try to find humor, whether it's deadly serious or a role that everybody thinks that they already know because I do a lot of revivals. I've done a lot of regional work and I've played a lot of leading ladies and ingenues. Like I always try to make them laugh because um, part of laughter is surprise. So that means I'm doing something unexpected. So I love in the audition room, um, bring in props. I love to use physical humor. I love to uh, use the reader or the accompanist in a specific way. Yeah, I go for the humor of it always. And if I can make them laugh, that means I've succeeded. <laughs> there have been plenty of times where that just doesn't happen. <laughs> I just, I, but I take a big, I try to take a big swing, you know? Uh, and sometimes it's a swing and a miss. What the most frustrating auditions are when, I, are when I can't take a big, when I don't allow myself or I think, oh, that's too much or I can't do. Yeah, when we hold ourselves back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And those just feel dreadful. That just feels awful.
When I bring a guest onto the podcast, I not only ask them for their three stories, I also ask them five final questions. These are topics that may be briefly mentioned here in these interviews, but in the written form, guests are allowed to go into a bit more detail. And so almost every guest this season, Kate included, has shared their own insights and experiences when it comes to lessons learned, best advice given, and of course, what making it means to them. I think um, the definition of success is having choices, choosing what your next project will be, and choosing it for reasons that make sense to you and to your family. You know, what best benefits. And also, success is also rolling with whatever comes at you and making the best decision you can in the moment, given the information you have. My dad always says it's you either make the right decision or you make the decision right. Uh, How can I fix whatever is falling apart? How can I switch course here and make uh, the next best choice, even if it means going like, whoops, I screwed that up, you know? So um, how can I save? It's, also, it's the same thing you do in the kitchen, right? If you burn the dinner, how can I save this? What can I do to make Or in the audition better? room, you know, the you, audition you, room. you yeah. make a mistake, you keep going. And that yeah. tells you more about a person than anything, right? Yeah. If, if we were perfect all the time, how boring would that be? Boring. And you are not boring at all. <laughs> I was trying to say I make lots of, lots of mistakes. <laughs> Check out those final five questions on the WinMe blog, which is hosted through Medium. You'll find the link to Kate's answers in the show notes. Well, this leads us into story number three, which is this deep-seated and pesky belief you have that performing a player musical eight times a week, it just isn't enough. You know, because it, it's not saving lives. You're not, you're not helping the planet. You're not feeding people who are hungry. So it, it sounds like that you're asking yourself, you know, what is it all for? What exactly is the, the point of all this singing and dancing? Yeah. Obviously, yeah. you find enjoyment in performing, oh, but I but, there, do. but there's a part where you see it as maybe less than other jobs. Of course, yeah, I think so. Because look at the world around us, and I uh, as I as I get older, I think about what is the legacy one leaves behind. What what can I do to make the world a little bit better than than how I left it? And I don't know if that's just, you know, being in my mid to late 40s. I don't know if that's being a mom. I don't know if that's um, coming through a, a, a pandemic and um, a really rocky political climate. But those are all on my mind often. And they weren't you know, 25 years ago when I was just starting out. When you're young, you're just like, me, me, me all the time. What can I do? What about What about me? And, and now it's more about like, what am I doing for them, for you, for us? What uh, version of service can I provide? And is this service, is doing eight shows a week enough? And is it helping? And I vacillate. There are days when I'm like, yes, people need to laugh. They need to feel like I need to lighten their load. And that's my job. I would talk to, okay, so during, during Hello, Dolly, Victor Garber played, um, oh God, Mr. Vandergelder. He took over for David. And he and I shared uh, a hallway. And he would come in and he would lie down on my chaise. I had a chaise in my <laughs> dressing room. <laughs> and he would do, oh, woe is me. And I love Victor because even when he's doing, oh, woe is me, he's hysterically funny. 
And he was like, oh, God, Kate, how are we going to do a musical today? You know, there, there are children dying. You know, there are people starving. You know, there are people, you know. And he would, he would have the weight of the world on his shoulders. And it was my job to say, Victor, there are people in that audience who have paid upwards of $250 so that you bring them some joy. You bring them some laughter. You t- take them away from the world for a minute. You were doing some... Hello, Dolly is a charm ball. You know what I mean? Like it's just a big old love bomb. So that's what they want and that's what we're going to do. And so, and sometimes I have to give myself that talk because sometimes I'm like, oh God, why do we work so hard and why do we put ourselves through this? And it's not really putting food on the table for anybody and it's not really giving anybody a a safe place to live. Um, And those things are needed too. So yeah, I wrestle with that often. So- this attitude, this perspective, does it influence the kind of shows you go for? No. Uh, no. It's so funny because whenever I'm doing like a, a comedy, I really want to do a serious drama. You know what I mean? Or like whenever I'm playing a, a do, doing a soprano role, I want to be a belter. Or whenever I'm doing a belter role, I want to be a soprano. So you always want the opposite of what, what you're up to. Don't you feel that? Oh, yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. When the role's so big that you're on stage every minute. You're like, God, I just, I just want to like have a 15 minute break. You know, <laughs> exactly, can, exactly. I have, can I have the little roll again? Exactly. exactly. And, then, and then when you're a little rolled and it's like, oh my gosh, I just want five more scenes, please. Or when you're doing something that's particularly heavy, like my friends who did Dear Evan Hansen for a long time said the minute they would get off stage after a particularly like emotional, heavy scene, they'd like be doing goofy dances and like trying to crack each other up, you know? And and conversely, sometimes when you're doing a light comedy on stage, you're like, really? But I feel like crying most of the time because mm-hmm. I'm paying attention. I'm aware of what's happening in the world. And how can you how can you be a good artist without being aware of the world? You have to take it all in. But you have to also be able to let you figure out how to not let things get to you in, in a sense that it makes you unable to do what you what you're supposed to do, you know, and what you ultimately want to do. Well, right. I think that balanced seesaw perspective is good so that when one is up, you realize the other has to come up too. And it's a balancing act of these different emotions and perspectives and feelings when it comes to playing a role, but also what the audience is getting too. Yeah. And also the sort of like external nature of what we're doing. I was trying to talk to with one of my dearest friends right now is having a really hard time on tour because there's so much attention coming at him you know, as, as part of a national tour that is a, a giant big show and, and uh, with a lot of press and a lot of uh, just attention that he wasn't necessarily used to. And he can fake it. He can go along with the interviews. He can go along with the, you know, extroverted kind of like, yes, I'll sign your program at the stage door. But that takes a toll on him. And he's like, why do I feel so crappy every day? Why is it so hard every day? I was like, yeah, it is hard to put yourself out there and receive that kind of attention that that feels huge in the moment, but isn't really doesn't really have the same meaning that a real personal relationship would have. You know what I'm saying? Like it feels more impersonal than the personal relationship that actually feeds you and makes you. Which is so interesting because from the outside, it looks so glamorous. It looks so busy and you're on mm-hmm. top of the world and you're everything. It can leave you so mixed up inside and leave you so feeling so empty. You feel your emptiness even more. Yeah, it's tough. It's really tough. And it, this is his first bout with it. And so I was like, I've been through this before. Let me hold your hand now. Yeah. It's going to be okay. Well, you have been nominated for many awards, you know, from (laughs) from Tony Awards. Well, I'm just saying, you've been there. You've done the Tony Awards, the Drama Desk, Outer Critics. I mean, you know, you've had all these award nominations. Haven't won one yet. (laughs) 
unfortunately. Oh, I wish, oh. Li- I wish, listener, you could see the pity in his eyes. Oh, so much. The caring. But, but I mean, so with this like, you know, worldly perspective yeah. then, do these awards really mean that much? They, well, you know what? An award um, means different things at different times in your life and different moments in your career. An award right now at my advanced age is not going to change my life. It really isn't. An award would only be like an ornament on the Christmas tree. It would be like an acknowledgement of like, hey, Kate, you did a good job. But in many respects, the nomination is that also is also the industry, the community, the people who who I respect and love and want to make stuff with saying, hey, we like making stuff with you too. That's what it feels like to me. So it just, it feels like a nice acknowledgement, handshake, uh, you know, a hug in that regard. But I've won one award. In Chicago, there is a group called the Sarah Siddons Society. What is Sarah Siddons? Right. Sarah Siddons was a famous actress, uh, and she is referred to in All About Eve. Do you know that movie, All Mm -hmm. About Eve? There was a fake award called the Sarah Siddons Award in that movie. So the Chicago uh, theater supporters community decided to create a real Sarah Siddons Award. So along with the award each year, there are scholarships given out to Chicago area college students who go to Northwestern, DePaul, Columbia, and Roosevelt. And so it is a a scholarship program. And then each year they have a big gala dinner and they invite somebody to quote unquote win their award. It was Christine Eversall last year. I've sung at it many times because they've honored my friends, Brian Darcy James and Sutton Foster and all this kind of stuff. And then they gave it to me one year. So it's like an honorary award, so to speak. Yeah, there's no competition. It's just a a group of people saying, we want to have a fancy dinner. Who should we invite? Who's good at talking? (laughs) Ding, ding, ding. You're a talker. Yeah. And then I went up on the words to my song during my awards uh, acceptance performance. It was great. Showing why you were deserving of that (laughs) award. (laughs) But as far as your competitive awards. I haven't won a damn thing. Okay. Always the nominee. But you know what? Happy to be there. Happy to be invited to the party. Just can't win a damn thing. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Always the nominee, never the winner. Correct. If it's with your MO for this thing. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm oh, saying. Oh, God. But I want to tell you a funny story. Uh, I, uh, w- Graham and I, my husband Graham and I went to the Tony Awards um, in 2000, 2017 because that was the Hello Dolly year. And my son, Colin, was five years old at that point. And so he stayed home with the babysitter. He wasn't going to come with us to the Tony Awards. But we said, hey, you know, mom's category will come on. I'll give you a sign uh, when they when they put the camera on me and dad. Uh, and we'll, and you'll see us on TV and, and we'll give you a little sign. So you'll know that we're thinking of you. So unfortunately, my category didn't come up until after his bedtime. His bedtime was nine o'clock. But we had DVR'd the Tony Awards. And so the next day when I came to pick him up from school, um, I asked him, you know, said, how are you doing? And and what do you want to do? And he said, well, I want to watch the rest of the Tony Awards with you. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, you know, sure. Of course we can. So we get to, the, to that part. Um, he thought Kevin Spacey was hilarious, by the way, as the host of I the mean, Tony he Awards. he was a good host. <laughs> he was a good host. Despite all the shitty things he's done Yikes. he was a good host yeah, yeah yeah we haven't we haven't really told him the you know yeah. finale to that story yet but we got to my category Graham and i did our fun little like fist bump you know for for our son and everything and so i went to go turn it i was like there it is there's a little sign for you and i went to go turn it off he goes no no no, wait i want to see how it ends like what what happens and they said and the tony award goes to rachel bay jones and colin's face fell it had not occurred to me that he didn't know that I didn't win. 
and, and that his expectation was. So he was like, what? And he started tearing the couch apart. He started like tearing the cushions off the couch. And he goes, <laughs> was like, wait, I hate the Tony Awards. I hate the Tony Awards. Oh. He started doing that. No, had he seen you in Hello, Dolly? Yeah, I think by that point he had yeah, seen me yeah, in Hello Doll. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But for him, it's not a big deal. For like watching mom on stage is like really not a big deal. But he just assumed mom's going to win. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Why would? Why else would we take a night away from him if if it wasn't something really important? Right. You know, something like that. So we had to turn off the TV and I had to have a good talk with him about it's not about winning and losing. It's about showing up and doing your best, your very best. And it's about, you know, uh, being part of a group, a part of a community. And part of a celebration, because the whole night is a celebration. So we have to talk about that. But it's really fun now that he's 11 to remind him of that moment and him going, yeah, yeah. He has, really has no memory of it. But he, he, uh, what he does have a memory of is the Rockettes. So the Rockettes were on that night too. And I just remember him looking at the Rockettes being like, uh-huh, okay, got it. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. Oh my no, goodness! Is, was, is, I hate the Tony Awards. That's a fun. That's a, that's a catchphrase in my house. <laughs> but, no, no, we don't like them. We don't like them at all. <laughs> funny. Well, I would imagine though that with this idea of there are more important things in life to do than you know get up and sing and dance, that you get maybe antsy or bored with doing the same show over and over. I again. I do, yeah. So I do too much during the day. I do other lots of other projects during the day. So. Well, right now I'm planning a concert in December. My friend Georgia Stitt and I have co-created or are in the midst of co-creating a concert that features the women composers and lyricists from Broadway. And we'll do five performances at the 92nd Street Y. So that's my days are spent talking to visual artists, talking to the line producers, um, getting my cast together. I have five singers. I'm one of them. Um, and then picking material to work on and, and what stories we're going to tell. I just, I love making stuff. So uh, that pandemic was really hard for me because uh, to not have an, a creative outlet, to not have people to make stuff with was really, 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 really hard. Well, and Georgia Stitt is a wonderful person she to is. work with. I, yeah. I had her on the podcast yeah. and, and she talked about Maestra and, yep. and the wonderful things that that organization is doing in uplifting uh, women musicians and composers and and, uh, and the like. So it's a, it's, it's a wonderful thing that uh, that she does. And so I'm glad that the two of you, you've worked together before. And other oh my gosh. Uh, Georgia is my work wife for almost 19 years now. So I've sung on her albums. She has written specialty material for me. She is my music director and my accompanist. Um, whenever I do concert work, um, she is my person who comes along with me. And I do her songs in my shows. And then she arranges, when I like, you know, have a new song, I'm like, will you do arrangement of this? And she does. And, and um, you know, she's one of my best friends and one of the smartest people, most creative people you'll ever meet. And if I ever feel like I'm overwhelmed and like, Overprogrammed during the day, I just think, oh, Georgia's doing. F where every one thing that I'm doing, Georgia's doing five. She, she she's never unbelievable. Stops. She yeah. never stops. I, I remember whenever we sat down. I mean, she had to kind of place it not just between her work, but also then she has kids, and then with Jason, and so just trying to schedule a moment in her life is really tough. And so I, yeah, I can only imagine how busy <laughs> she stays. I mean, we we're on a vacation compared to her oh, most 100%. days. Yeah, I know. And I think to myself, well, I really could rest during the day and really, you know, like save all my energy for the show at night. But I think part of 
part of what I can bring on stage e each night is fueled by the things that I get to do during the day. So it is always f about finding a balance. And I imagine since COVID, you know, when we were all shut out of anything creative, you've had a renewed sense of, of staying busy and wanting to do more things. Yeah. Um, I had two projects during the pandemic. One was joining Georgia's organization, uh, her not-for-profit that's called Maestra. If you go to maestramusic.org, um, I directed Maestra's virtual spring fundraiser. And so that was in 2020. And I gathered everyone and, and wrote the virtual spring fundraiser. Um, obviously not alone, obviously with a lot of help with, from a digital company called Broadway Unlocked and Jessica Ryan and and Julianne Merrill was our music director, and we had so many wonderful collaborators. Heather Gershonowitz filmed and and cut together so many wonderful videos for us. And then we did a version, a hybrid version last year in 2021, where we had a live venue and we also streamed it at the same time. And now we're in the throes of planning for Amplify 2023. So I'm kind of like directing things, I guess, ish. And how does that feel? Um, Fun. It's fun to be in charge. You know, I, I, <laughs> right, right. It's nice to say you're going to sing this song and I'm going to do this and you're going to do that and and this is what it should look like and yeah it's it's fun to make decisions that way and to impart some knowledge and to share what I know to other artists that's and and also hear from them and we talked about your marriage and being a mother I assume that that's also given you a different perspective when it comes to not only your life but your career as well oh yeah absolutely what jobs will you take and and um, what jobs won't you take and how that all fits in into your family life my husband is incredibly thoughtful and communicative and we work as a team to make decisions about what kind of work makes sense for us in the moment and we always revisit those conversations and thankfully we uh, can work it out together. I know it's not always easy for two artists to live together. You know, when one person is uh, involved with a project, that kind of means the other person needs to be the primary parent and take care of the home front. And that I'm fortunate to have a husband who will do that for me at this moment. Um, and then that will flip on November 7th. He'll go into rehearsal for something and I'll have to be the primary parent at that point. But that's the deal you make, right? You know, he would do it for me, so I, I will do it for him. So um, fortunately, that's, you know, 17 years of that. So we've, we've managed to do it all pretty well. Thank you so much for joining Kate Baldwin and me today. But remember, the conversation continues with the final five questions on the Win Me blog. Well, that does it for me, Patrick Oliver-Jones, in charge of writing, editing, and producing this podcast. Background music is by John Bartman and Blue Dot Sessions. Why I'll Never Make It is a Win Me Media production, and it is part of the Helium Radio Network and a member of the Broadway Makers Alliance. Join me next time as we talk more about Why I'll Never Make It. Listen, I pulled you out of the white room earlier oh, this you week. Did. Oh, you did. That's right. There's That's Patrick right. there in the white room. Didn't know what he was supposed to say or where he was or what was happening. And the thing is, I had just entered. I know. Like I, I That's the best time had, for it to happen. I hadn't even done anything. <laughs> I come on and I look at you. No idea what to Nothing. say. He was gone. I was like, I 
now. It's like, I know I'm supposed to say mm-hmm. something to you right now. I was ready for you. Oh, you I was going to help you. But then all of a sudden, the floodgates open and all your lines came out like a tidal wave. I was like, oh, he's here. He's all, back. All he's once. back. He's back. <laughs> <laughs>